If you have your uh, Bibles with you this morning, will you please open them up to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Uh, we're going to be cracking on with our, our series uh, through the book and be finishing off the verse chapter today. Um, so while some of you are turning there with your Bibles, I have a book that's um, called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. You had a major part in my thinking of today's uh, sermon. So if you have some spare cash, um, you love to read, don't love to read, this is the guy, you need to get hold of his stuff um, and, and cherish it because it really does transform us as Christians and he really does challenge us a lot as he unpacks God's word really well. J.C. Rowell, um, and this book is called Holiness. But any of his stuff, he's dead, so he doesn't write anymore. Um, but he's absolutely fantastic. He's my favorite dead theologian. So um, get hold of his things. We're going we're gonna to be diving in right into this passage now. Uh, 1 Timothy 18, verses, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18, verses uh, 18 to 20. It's on the board. There we go. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that, you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hamanias and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Lord, we, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just want to acknowledge that you are our king, that you are our God who, who has come and he shed his blood. He has died for us so that we might be a part of your family, a part of your mission. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that we would just be able to focus on you. Lord, what a waste of a day it would have been, what a waste of a morning it would have been if we came here and not, did not hear from you. So would you be gracious to us? Would you speak into our lives? Would we be stirred this morning so that we might be on mission for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, um, we see that we, there's this call to action. Paul calls us to war. In, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, Paul calls Timothy a good soldier for Christ. He needs to be a good soldier. And for those of us who are in Christ, when, when we decided to cross that line of faith and believe in Jesus, from the very first breath that we took then until the very last breath that we breathe, we are called soldiers of Christ. We are called to fight a war. And for some of us, this might sound strange because our local uh, say local and national television preachers teach us of a life of prosperity, a life of ease, a life of just cruising until the end and things will be great if we are Christian. But the reality of it is that we are called to a life of action, a life of war, that we are meant to fight and fight hard. So what are we meant to fight? Who are our enemies then if we're going to continue using this picture? Well, firstly, it's not people, okay? We are not called to fight one another, particularly as Christians. Fighting amongst us does not help us towards the cause 
of what God has planned for us. It's sinful and it must be cut out. But people in general as well, we have the same enemies that are behind them. Regardless of their actions, of what they've done, behind them is the same enemies. And those three enemies are, one, the world, two, the flesh, and three, Satan. And when I, when I talk about the world being our enemy, I'm not talking about that we need to go conquer it. We're not doing a pinky in the brain mission here. You know, what are we going to do tonight, brain? The same thing we do night, every night, pinky, try to take over the world. That's not what we are called to do. But when I refer to let us fight the world, it is talking about the society's perspective of what the mission of life is. That we need to live in the moment, live in the now, take on this and enjoy it. You've got to have it and you've got to enjoy it this moment. While that might be true to chocolate, it's certainly not true when it comes to life. Because if that's our perspective of enjoying things and enjoying it, not na- enjoying it now and not worried about this future aspect that comes with Christianity, we may as well be like Solomon says and say the words, let us each drink and, to- and be merry for tomorrow we die. And when we have this perspective of the now and the now is the point and only and not about living for the future, then what we find is we find that we start saying things like, God wants me to be happy. Sin makes me happy. So therefore, he won't mind if I do this. We start worried about the world's perspective of how we look because now is so important rather than the future. So the world is our enemy. Secondly, we have the flesh. The flesh. And when I say the flesh here, I'm not talking about the physical aspect because then we could argue that people is that. But when I say flesh, we're talking about the natural desires that are in us. And some of these natural desires are good. So sleep, I'm desperately needing some sleep. Sleep would be great. So that's a great natural desire. A natural desire to be around others, to have company, not to be alone, is a godly desire that is good that we have in us. But there are plenty of natural desires which stir up in us which are against what God wants and the way we live. And we need to fight against those. But these, these fleshly desires that are in us, they are little buggers. <laughs> they there, they cry out, they seek attention, and they want us. And though for those of us who have crossed that line of faith and and we're told that those natural desires no longer have power over us because we are in Christ and Christ died for our sins, they are still there screaming their heads off, wanting to make sure we give them all our attention. And when we don't give them our attention, they are screaming. And when we do give them our attention, they are partially satisfied until we turn our eyes away and focus on other things. Paul says we need to fight We need to wage war inside of us. Make sure that we fight these natural desires not to please them, to make sure that we destroy them, to get rid of them. Thirdly, we find that our enemy is Satan. And we see in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion that is seeking, looking, searching, roaming for someone to devour We see Jesus himself explains that in John 10, verse 10, he says, Satan, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, John 8, verses 44, he will say that he is, from the very beginning, he was a murderer and a liar. And he is the master of psychology. 
He knows exactly how to make you feel down. He knows exactly what buttons to push to make you feel angry. He knows exactly how to make you anxious, how to despair. And he picks on those things often. And we are called to fight him and to make sure we resist him and fight back. You might be saying, Joey, geez, you've become rather extreme and you've painted this on real thick since the last time we heard you preach. But let us read Ephesians 6 verses 12. Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, the present darkness against spiritual forces, and evil in the heavenly places. This is what we call to fight. We are meant to fight, church. We are meant to take up arms and wage war against our enemies. But I fear there are too many of us who like the idea of a prosperity gospel. But if we are going to be Christians that seek the glory of Jesus Christ, to live in his purpose, we are take up arms and fight these enemies and take them seriously. The worst kinds of soldiers are the ones who think they're okay and they're in the clear. We need to make sure that we understand we are at war and we got to wage this good warfare that Paul talks about. So how do we do that? How do we wage a good warfare? Now, Paul says here, um, he says, I'm in the wrong book. <laughs> Paul says here, holding faith and a good conscience. The first thing that we need to do in waging this war is that we need to make sure that we hold on to faith, and, and faith in a general sense. So faith in the biblical truths that we have read and that we know that these are truths and that we, believe to, we believe in them. That's what faith is, believing, um, uh, trusting in these truths as, as beneficial, as good, as from God. And when we hold on to these general truths, then we're able to wage war against the natural desires that pop in us. Because when they come up and they pop and temptation arises, we're able to go, this is bad, but the truths that I hold on to by the principle that I have read in God's word, these are good. And I have faith that God has put these in place for a particular reason, and we are meant to wage war against that. So when in business, when someone wants to come and give an underhanded deal and the pleasures and the riches that come with it are completely outweighed by the joy of the obedience that comes with God. And we hold on to our faith even though it is so alluring to do it. When the lady in the office, the man, the man in the office, comes and he starts crossing some boundaries and you're a married man or woman, you are able to flee like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife presented herself to Joseph to take him to his bed, her bedroom, and he ran. Why? Because he was able to hold on to principles that was outlined clearly for him in the Word of God. We need to hold on. It's not just, it's, it's this gripping and this making sure that it's true to us. If we don't, <laughs> we will find ourselves falling into the temptations of the flesh, of the world of Satan. Hold on to these things. The second thing that we need to hold on to in faith comes in the sense of holding on in faith specifically in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, and in the resurrection of Jesus. 
It's important that we have faith in the person of Jesus because when we understand that Jesus was just like us and went through the hardships that we went through, we were able to connect with him better. So we understand that Jesus had, uh, had a father and mother and the age of a, at a young age, he must have been a teenager, his father died. And he, at that age, being the oldest son, would have had to lead his family. He, would have, he was a carpenter. He would have hit his thumb with a hammer. All of us did. I know Jesus, has, he didn't have like perfect aim. He, he would have hit his thumb. He would have got a splinter. He, he, on the cross, he says, I thirst. He got hungry and thirsty. In Jesus' darkest hour, when he was about to go and be crucified, his closest friends that had lived together for three years ran away and abandoned him. Jesus understands the difficulties that we go through. And, and when we understand that, that there's this God that is not far removed from our circumstances, is not calling us to a war in which he has not fought himself, when we get that we're able to have faith in him, be able to come to a God that sympathizes with us, who gets us, who's called us to a war that he understands. And we need to hold on to that, have faith in that, because he gets it. But then we, we also need to have faith in the death of Jesus. Now, now, this is the pinnacle of all Christianity. If we fail to do this, we miss the boat altogether. We can't call ourselves soldiers of Christ. We can't call ourselves Christians if we miss this. We have to have faith in this because in the death of Jesus on the cross, we see that Jesus paid ransom for our sin. We were as the Bible describes, slave to sin. We were unable to pay for our own uh, freedom, unable to get away. But Jesus on the cross pays the price so that we might be set free from the bondage of sin. And in doing so, now we are free to live for Jesus. And when sin comes along, when those natural desires start to stir in us, start to ask us to do things which are contrary to God, in the past we would have had to say, how high when it said jump? Now we can say no. Because Christ has set us free. And when we hold on to that aspect, on that faith, when those temptations arise, we are free to say no. But not only do we look at the cross and see that we have been set free from the bondage of sin, but we also look at the cross and we see love. I think so often we think Jesus just came to die because he hated sin so much, and he does. But the primary reason for the sending of, the cro- sending of Jesus dying on the cross was because he looked at us and he loved us. So when we are going through temptation and going through war and it feels like we're walking through the gates of hell, we're able to look at a God who sympathizes with us, but also God who has set us free from sin and loves us dearly. So important. And when we lose the awe and wonder of this, when we forget how magnificent our God is and what he's done for us on the cross, we so easily let go and fall into the enemy's attacks. Hold on, church. Hold on. And I speak this morning with passion because I know how bad I am with this. We've got to do this better. Next aspect we have here is we have got to trust in the resurrection of Jesus. This is hugely important for us because it shows that the that that it's proof that the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross for us was accepted by the Father. It's proof that the sin has been paid. 
But not only that, we see a God who was the Lamb of God going off to the slaughter. But now as we sung this morning, there is this victory in Jesus. He comes back as a victorious king, defeating sin, defeating death over it all, for us all, that those for us who believe in him. And now he is resurrected and he has risen. And when we look at him, he's a God who is in control. He's a God who sits on the throne of God. So when we go through these walls, we're able to look at him as our, the one who sympathizes with us, the one who died for our sin and loves us, but also as the one who is currently in control as well. We're able to hold on. Hold on to faith, church. How's your faith doing? Because faith varies. Faith varies. It, it goes up and down. How is your faith? We see Jesus says, oh, you of little faith to those in Matthew 6. But he also says to others, he was blown away by the amount of faith the centurion had in Jesus. Can you come before Jesus this morning and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Ask him. Ask him, and he will give us faith. The second thing that we need to hold on to is that we need to hold on to a good conscience. A good conscience. And the reason, what a good conscience is, is that we take the biblical truths that are given to us, we know what is right and what is wrong by what God tells us in his word, and then as a result, our good conscience makes sure that we choose what is right and avoid what is bad. Does that make sense? That's important. It doesn't determine what is right and wrong. No, that is determined by God's word, but it helps us choose what is right and not what is wrong. Very, very important. But a good conscience comes so when, when the temptation arises, it says, no, that is bad. Don't do it, but do this. So we need to hold on to a good conscience, says Paul. Hold on to it. But what I find interesting as we see up there, it's a, it's a both and thing. Paul says, hold on, to a good fa- uh, uh, hold on to faith and a good conscience. These things work together. When our faith is weak, our good conscience slips and becomes weak. Because as the temptation arises, our conscience tells us, no, that's bad, but this is good. And your faith goes kind of wearing there on the general principles that we see in God's word. And you're going, well, does it really matter? Is it really important for us to do this? So then what you do is you, you go the bad route. You, you fall into temptation. But when our faith is strong and our good conscience is there, these two help together and work together and do well. Does that make sense? But when our good conscience is weak and our faith is weak and we, in some way, we're able to step out in faith and and trust God and obey our good conscience, then our faith arises as soon as we start to realize that obedience can happen. That when we are obedient and and we're able to resist this temptation which doesn't have strongholds over our lives anymore, and we're able to do that, there comes joy, there's peace, there's hope, there's love in it, our, our faith arises. And as our faith gets stronger, so our conscience gets stronger. And as our conscience gets stronger, so our faith gets stronger. And there's this process that starts to happen. It's a both-and thing. Hold on to them both. <laughs> there might be some of you here this, this, this morning who aren't Christian. And you're going, well, Joey, <laughs> if you're telling me Christian life is a war, then I don't want anything to do, do with it. I don't want to choose to go to war. That's, that sounds ridiculous. The choice that we have 
is not whether or not you want to be in war or not. It's not the choice. You're in war. The choice that you have is whether or not you want to choose what team, what flag do you want to fight under. That's the choice. You can be on the winning side with Jesus, or you can be under any other flag you choose, your own flag, any flag. Think of it. It's fine. You can choose it one. But ultimately, there's only one victor, and that is Jesus. Because the enemies that we as Christians fight are the same enemies that you fight. The only difference is that we have been set free, not because we're special, but because Jesus is and what he's done. And you are chained up, and you're going to have the end result is going to be the same for anyone other than under the flag of Jesus Christ. And this war that Paul says is a good war. Because there might be some of you here that are Christian today that are going, Joey, I, I feel like I'm going through war already, man. Things are tough. And you're telling me now I need a fight? Things are hard. You know, worldly war is, is tough. It's destruction. There's, there's death. There's homes that are left with mourning uh, widows and orphans. There's taxation that takes place. Destruction of property is greed. It brings out the worst in us. War is awful. (laughs) Find me a war and I'll show you why it was bad. So how then, how in the world can Paul say, wage the good warfare? Why is this war good? I want to list some things that J.C. Rao mentions. Um, So this is all his thought of that book, Holiness, I was telling you about earlier. And he gives these following points on why it is good. And we're going to rush through these quickly. It says, yeah, the fight is good because it is fought under the best general. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He knows what direction and he moves with purpose. He's also the general that cares about the least of his soldiers. If you're sick and weary, he comes and cares for the sick and weary. He's able to strengthen you. I know some of you are going through some Hard times. I, some of you have shared your stories that you're currently going through. And you are battling, but know that you have a general who cares. He's your place of refuge. We also, have, we fight. This fight is good because it is fought with the best of helps. The Holy Spirit comes and he indwells in us. He empowers us. He teaches us. He leads us and guide us, guides us through this battle. He gives us strategy. He helps us to defeat the enemy, not out of our own strength, but out of the strength that he gives us. The the Father comes along and he guards over us. 1 Peter 1 verse 5 talks about the power of God standing over our salvation. This image of God is one of a Roman soldier that stands there and takes care of us. But not just anyone, not an angel, but the Father himself protecting you. We see that Jesus... The Son intercedes on our behalf. When we don't even know how to pray, when we don't know what's going on, the the Son is there interceding on our behalf. Thirdly, the fight is good because it is fought with the best of promises. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, For I am convinced that he who started in good work in in you will bring it to completion. Jesus has enrolled you into his army to fight this war, but he's going to make sure that you will see V-Day. He will make sure of it. That's a promise that we can hold on to. 
Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 says, For I am, I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Why? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing, no war that you are going through will be able to separate you from his love. We are fighting a good war. Fourthly, the fight is good because it is, has the best of outcomes and results. We go through huge amounts of hurt, huge amounts of conflict. We are wounded, but we will be more than conquerors in Jesus. Romans 8 verse 37 says that we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus. The image of the word, Greek word for more than conquerors was only used for Greeks for the elite. So Hercules... Um, those kinds of guys like that, Achilles, they would have been called more than conquerors. And, and, and Paul is saying, in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. No matter what age you're at, no matter how your physical stature looks, no matter what gender you are at, no matter what color of your skin, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are the same. In Christ, we are victors in this war. We're not because of who we are, but because of who he is and because we're in him. The next thing, number five, is it's fought. And this fight is good because it is good for the soul of him who fights it. War brings out the worst in us. Brings out the worst in men. But this fight, as we fight our passions, as we fight this war, it brings in us the best. As we begin, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory to another. As we fight, we become more and more like Christ wants us to become. It's fight this good war. It's good for us. It's good because it ends in glorious reward. And we will end on this one. It's good because it ends in glorious reward. We are told that in Revelations 21, verses 3 and 4, that one day we will be with God and He will be with us. That He will wipe away every tear. That there will be no more mourning, no more crying. Can you picture a world like that? Where there will be no more sickness, no more shame. We will be in a glorious world that is perfect. Our bodies will be perfect and we'll be with Christ. It's with this perspective in mind that Paul is able to say in Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You might be going through suffering, but you might not see the end. But trust me, there is hope because there is a glorious end. You might be carrying the cross, but you might not see the crown, but we are told we will get a crown of life. This war is good. This war is good. Let's fight this. Let's fight this war. And may I just, in closing, my, my last, very last statement. May I suggest that this war is good and we are able to succeed not because of us. You might be feeling weak and downcast, feeling I cannot achieve this. It's because of Jesus. He's the one who ransomed us. He's the one who empowers us. And he's the one who gives us a, a crown and glory. It is, it is absolute grace. We did nothing to deserve the saving, but yet he saved us. We did nothing to deserve empowering, but he empowers us to live the life that he saved us into. And then we certainly, as a result of those two things, don't deserve a reward, but he is gracious again and gives us reward.
We've got a great King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who fights on our behalf, and in Him we are more than conquerors. Let us fight, let us fight, let us fight. And now let us pray. Lord, I, we come before you this, this morning, Lord, because we are just, just in awe of who you are. We are so thankful, Lord, that you are a God who is our conqueror. You are the God who's come and ransomed us from sin. We thank you, Lord, that in this war that you have called us to, that you are the great commander-in-chief. You are a great warrior who fights on our behalf. I pray for, for those that are in this room this morning, Lord, that, you would, that don't know you, that are on, uh, an, under another flag. Would you stir in their hearts this, this desire to be a part of your team, to be part of your army? We pray, Lord, for those that are a part of your army but are wounded, ill, going through tough times. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would be a place of refuge. But Lord, for the rest of us who, who are a part of your army but just need a serious kick, would you just do it? Would you help us to be stirred with faith and, and have a good conscience and to be hold on to those too tightly as we can? Lord, you are the great king and we want to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.